I'm Maria Shriver, and this is Meaningful Conversations. On every episode, we'll take a journey into the lives of inspiring, thoughtful, thought-provoking people. People who are smart, spirited, and spiritual. People who have done extraordinary things to make a positive impact on our world. These are people I respect and admire. People who inspire me. I want them to share their stories, their experiences, their wisdom, and their feelings with you. I hope we can come together in community to reflect on the issues and topics that we're all thinking about, but no one seems to be talking about. I hope that you're inspired to have more meaningful conversations with the people in your life. Father Greg Boyle is a global champion for social justice and one of the most inspiring architects of change that I know. As the founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, Father Boyle and his team employ and train former gang members who are ready to walk the path to a better life. Homeboy Industries is the largest program of its kind in the world. I've followed Father Boyle's soul-changing work for years, and I admire him so much for encouraging us all to see the value and potential in every human being's life. I recently sat down with him to talk about his new book and also to discuss what he's learned about how faith, compassion, and connection can transform all of our lives. I hope you find this conversation as inspiring as I did. So I'm really glad to be talking to one of my real life heroes in real life. You rarely get to do that. Father Greg Boyle used to be a Los Angeles secret, and then he became a national secret. And now because of the way the world is, I think you're not a secret anymore. You're just a global champion of social justice, a global champion of the divinity in each of us, global champion of uh, people. Obviously, your focus was on people who were in gangs and the rehabilitation of that. But larger than that, to me, is the beauty that exists in each and every one of us. So I want to welcome Father Boyle. And we want to sell his book here, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. So, Father Boyle, let me begin with, what is radical kinship? Oh, it's great to be with you, Maria. You know, I, uh, radical kinship is the kind of the exquisite mutuality you encounter if you go to the margins and, and kind of turn that on its head, rather than I'm going to go out to the margins to make a difference. So, well, maybe I'll go out there so that the folks at the margins can make me different that the widow orphan stranger, the, the person who has been left out and, and easily despised and demonized and disposable. What if I went out there and I allowed myself to be reached by these folks? That what that leads to is the kind of that you shall be one, that all shall be one as Jesus talks about. So that's where the joy is. And, but, but when you do that, it feels sort of passive. Mm-hmm. But part of the thing in service and and kinship is to how do we keep this from being about ourselves? And that's the great equalizer. And then you can enter into this connection with people, which is the whole point, where there is no us and them, there's just us. There's, you know, how do you obliterate uh, the illusion that we are separate? Well, how, how do we do that? I mean, I love the idea of going out to, as you said, the margins, and there's been so much discussion lately in the news about the margins, people on the margins, people on the margins coming in, 
should we let them in, should we not, in our political discourse. And you're advocating that all of us can go, quote, to the margins, but not to make a difference, but to allow the difference to happen. How, how do you do that, actually? Well, a lot of it has to do with vicinity and proximity. Yes. I mean, you ha actually have to move away from, you know, kind of where you are to, to be able to really accompany folks and to put yourself uh, kind of where they are. Otherwise, we disqualify ourselves endlessly. We're always saying, well, I can't make a difference and I can't really fit in, mm -hmm. which is the kind of the reverse of us going to the margins to think we need to fix and save and to rescue people. Yeah. But you want to be able to go there so that everybody can inhabit their mutual dignity and nobility and unshakable goodness. And so people reflect that back to each other rather than perhaps going to the margins and holding the bar up and asking folks to measure up to something. Instead, so you go out there and you, and you, you say, well, I'm going to hold the mirror up to you and, and thank you for holding the mirror up to me. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's mutual. And, and, and it, this is um, you know, Cesar Chavez, you know, who I knew as a friend, and, and he used to say, you know, people would say, well, you know, the farm workers love you. And, and he would say, the feeling's mutual. And so that's how you want to get to that place where it's not about I've come to save, rescue, help, serve even, even serve. Serve is a good place to start, but you don't want to end there. You want to somehow arrive uh, at the, from the hallway of service to the ballroom of connection and kinship. So when you began, Father, like before Homeboy became what it is today, was your intention to be of service? Was your intention to make a difference by rehabilitating people who had been in gangs? Well, I didn't, st I was just a pastor of the poorest parish right. in the city. So I never set out to do anything. But then I was bearing kids and then shooting all the time. And then it was like, now I need to, how are we as a community going to respond to this real thing that's happening? And so I never set out to do anything. Having said that, I'm sure I began my early days on my bike in the middle of the night in the projects was crazy making because, you know, then you're setting out to save and mm -hmm. a tally sheet and rescue and fix and and probably, you know, I've been at this for 35 years, so yeah. probably the first six years was that crazy thing where I, I went, no, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. A, it's too much about me. Right. B, I'll burn out and I'll get depleted. Right. But then you just find another way to be out at the margins that is eternally replenishing. What is that? How do you do that? Well, you do it by, by insisting that it not be about you. And, and you have to kind of go against that, your ego and, and your false self, if you will. And then you do have to kind of embrace a whole other way of receiving who these folks are. I mean, today I just spent a half day in the office and you can kind of, you know, you, you can kind of turn a mantra into the thing where you're just, you know, listen, listen to them, stay listening. Don't go anywhere else. Stay present. Stay present. And it's, it's what the poet Rumi calls the infinite moment when everything happens. So you want to mm. be in that infinite moment all the time. And when you are, you're, you're, you're receiving people and they're, and they're feeling like, wow, I'm valuable enough to be received. It, something happens. That's where the mutuality 
kicks in. You know, that's where where peop, everybody's inhabiting their nobility and dignity in each other's presence. I haven't bestowed something on him, but together we've arrived at something that's quite exquisite. And so I felt when I left there this afternoon to come here, I thought, you know what? I wouldn't trade my life for anybody's. That was just the most ah. exciting, fun, heartbreaking, delightful. And only because you're you're there when it happens. And and we're not always there when stuff happens. We're You're in the room, as they say in the- Hamilton, right? You're in the room when it happens. That's right. You talk about early on in your career wanting to go in and fix, save, make a difference, right? And then that slowly you realized you'd burn out if you continued. And then to make it not about yourself and not about what you're doing, but you kind of evolved into this radical kinship that you write about embarking to the choir. But that you're in that moment of getting, being sustained by your work as opposed to being depleted by your work. And yet so many of us can't get to that place. How do you get to being sustained by what feels like 24-hour-a-day work? Yeah, the sustenance comes from from delighting in the present moment. That's how you get sustained, and that's how you can stay in the room, you know, basically. Yeah. Otherwise, you, you know, you see people like problems, or, and no amount of me wanting that kid to have a life will ever be the same as that kid wanting to have one. So, you know, yeah, you exactly. want to be able to love this person into the po- moment when when they kind of see what you see, when they see themselves as you see them, or I would even say even as God sees them, you know, which is exactly right, you know, exactly what God had in mind. And you want them to inhabit that truth and become that truth. And and that has to be enough for you, you know, but that's the key thing about it being about you. I was in Chicago recently and a college student came up to me after a talk, and she said, I'm too afraid to go to the margins. And wow. and I said, why are you afraid? And she said, I'm afraid I won't fit in. And I said, you know, if it's going to be about you, you'll always be afraid. And it was like a frog that leapt out of my mouth, and I was kind of embarrassed. I went, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. But I think it's true, you know, because yeah. I think you have to, it's a subtle thing. If it's about me fitting in at the margins, then that is by definition about you, you know. And so you want to be able to say, um, you know, how do you fit out, you know? How do you go, go to the margins and not fit in but fit out? How do you go there and somehow be on the receiving end of something? Don't go away. We'll have more of the conversation in just a moment. But first, let's talk about one of our sponsors. With stress and anxiety, many people can often feel exhausted during the day. Then comes bedtime and they just can't fall asleep. Well, if worrying is affecting your days and nights, then it's probably also affecting your overall health. That's why Meaningful Conversations is partnering with Calm, the number one app to help you reduce anxiety and stress and help you sleep better. More than 40 million people around the world have already downloaded it. So if you head over to calm.com meaningful, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription. 
which includes, by the way, guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, including a brand new meditation each day. There are also sleep stories. Yep. They're bedtime stories for adults designed to help you relax. Head to the magical lavender fields of Southern France with Stephen Fry or explore the moonlit jungles of Africa with Leona Lewis. They even have soothing music and so much more. Right now, Meaningful Conversation listeners, that's you, well, you get 25% off a Calm Premium subscription at calm.com slash meaningful. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash meaningful. Get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at calm.com slash meaningful. Get calm and stop stressing. Now let's get back to the conversation. You've been on the receiving end. You've been doing this for so long. I'm curious as to whether you feel that people are more into the me today in 2019. Do they have a vision for a collective? Do you see a change in common ground and common purpose and common vision? Yeah, I think it's changed. You know, it's, uh, we know Jesuit connections. So, yes. <laughs> so I've spoken at a lot of Jesuit universities, and, and maybe this is true everywhere, but, but there's a kind of privileged paralysis that privileged paralysis. that I never would have seen 25 years ago. And what it, it reflects wow. not in, let's set the world on fire, and we're going to go to the margins, and we're going to... It's, they're paralyzed. They sit back and they go, oh gosh, isn't that presumptuous of us to go to the margins? I mean, I'm, I'm white or I'm privileged, even if I'm of color. Mm-hmm. And, and then they can't move. And I thought, wow, this is, this is new, you know, because they, wow. they, I don't know if you've seen this, yeah. you know, where it's, where they, I don't want, you want to say, no, no, just turn privilege on its head. You don't have to feel bad about where you came from. Yes, that you hear a lot of people talking about like, uh-oh, I'm white privilege. Uh-oh, exactly. if I go and I want to go to a Black Lives Matter, I'm going to get attacked. Or if right. I want to you know, go over here, people are going to go, you don't know anything about my experience, get out. Yeah, and, and I don't, I've never seen that before. You know, the privilege, the privilege paralysis. I've never seen the paralysis part. That's so never, interesting. But, you know, so like even like the judge volunteer core, you right. know, where folks right after, in the Jesuit kind of world, after university, they'll take a, a, a you know, a gap year or whatever mm-hmm. and be of service. Right. There was more of that where, you know, I want to do this. And now people are holding back, gosh, will that be insulting to the folks on the margins for me to go there? And what would you say to them? And how do we break through that paralysis? Because I do hear that. Well, I, I tell them to turn the privilege on its head, you know, where that only becomes an issue if, if in fact, somewhere deep down it's about you and you think it's about saving, fixing, and, and rescuing. Then, yeah, feel bad about that. Don't, don't let that be the engine that drives you. Mm-hmm. But the minute you can kind of say, wow, the widow, orphan, stranger, the folks at the margins, these are my trustworthy guides. I'm going to go there so they can lead me to the kinship of God. Well, that's you've just turned privilege on its head because... You're not guiding them or leading them. They're doing that to you. 
but in your accompaniment, that's how margins get erased anyway, is by all of us standing at them. But you you have been around long enough to have seen kind of the, you know, social justice fights in this country where people kind of came together to get something done. Do, do you feel like you talk about privilege paralysis, which I hadn't heard that description before, but it seems correct. Do you feel that people are hopeful when you go out into the streets? Do they feel like, yeah, we want to work together for the country? Or is it very me, 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 and I don't want to offend No, I, I, I think if, if the invitation is authentic and genuine as best as you can and have it be from the, the marrow of the gospel, people really get it. People really respond to it. People say, oh, count me in. You know, I want to be a part of that. And I don't think people fold their arms and, and kind of get obstinate about it. They, they go, oh, no, I, that, I get what you're saying there. I think that's, that's how you keep it compelling rather than furthering, you know, the tribal, you know, animosity that sort of exists out there. You say the marrow of the gospel. What is the marrow of the gospel? Well, I think once people kind of get beyond all the stuff that trips us up in terms of faith and things, you know, if, if if you can say, you know, Jesus took four things seriously, only four, inclusion, nonviolence, unconditional loving kindness, and compassionate acceptance, people nod at that. They go, yeah. Count me in. I, I, yeah, I want. I want to take seriously those four things, and then it then it becomes a radical critique of how things are currently running. You know, I mean, yeah. at, at some point it it gets translated into politics. You know, do do we want to be about inclusion or do we want to exclude people? Do, are there conditions on our love or are we unconditional with it? Are there parameters to how we compassionately accept people? Or are we reject, rejecting people in a wholesale way? So I find, you know, that people really sit up. And they, and they, all, they all say, yeah, I, I want that. But you have to get to this other place, right. you know, right. where it's not an agenda even, where it's not kind of aligned somewhere. I think people connect to our fundamental sense of belonging. You know, so Mother right. Teresa says the problem in the world we've just forgotten, that we belong to each other. I love that so, quote. So once we get to a place where we go, oh, everyone belongs, and that's the challenge mm-hmm. because we, there are all sorts of people we don't think Should actually belong. belong. Yeah. But once you know that that's as a principle, that you can't, you can't shake that, and that demonizing for example, which is the opposite of this. Demonizing is the opposite of who God is. Demonizing is always untruth. Those are things you can take to the bank. And once you're reliant on that kind of certainty about demonizing, then you catch yourself as you do it. You catch yourself as you demonize the other side, as you refuse to get underneath stuff. Boy, I wonder what language that behavior is speaking. And then you're trying to move to another place of understanding, admitting, as I do, that everybody is unshakably good. That's what I think. And that there are things that impede that. There are things that keep 
people from having access to their own goodness. So you want to, how can I help you? How can we help each other? Eliminate the things that prevent you from seeing the truth of who you are, that you're unshakably good. You saw the innate goodness in people who were involved in gangs, who'd spent time in jail, who come out. And uh, instead of thinking, up, they're just going to go right back where they came from, you saw their innate goodness or you wanted to help them see theirs. How difficult is that to have to help people see their innate goodness? It's pretty difficult, but but <laughs> yeah. I think once you're in a kind of like at Homeboy, you know, and you've been there, so you know that there's a kind of it's a community. Homeboy of Industries, let yeah. me just say, is what Father Boyle started from scratch, and you can go down there and you see men and women who have spent their whole lives in gangs, trying to turn their lives around. And so go ahead. Yes, well, you, you you it's palpable. You know, it's a community of tenderness, and and people are disarmed by it, and. It's compelling, and, and people go, wow, I, I want this. I, I think it's the only reason why so many gang members walk through our doors, because that's what they want. Yeah, we pay those who are in our 18-month training program. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they always say, we'd show up here whether you paid us or not. And it's because, I'm sure they not even sure they know exactly why that is. I suspect it's because how compelling it is to have people you know, surround you and care with care and love and, and, uh, esteem and, and tenderness, which is for me, the highest form of spiritual maturity. It's, it's how love becomes connective. It's how love, you know, is the connective tissue that, uh, otherwise lo- love can, you know, uh, stay in your head or in the ether or even in your heart, but unless it becomes tender, so describe that. You write in, in the book, and I want to keep repeating the book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Uh, you can just order it, order it on Amazon, and we'll put it up in the Sunday paper where you can also order it. But you write a lot about tenderness. And, and when you were writing, when I was reading the book, I was trying to think about like you know moments of tenderness in my own life. And you can kind of, um, if you close your eyes and think about someone being tender to you, it, it almost brings you to tears, mm-hmm. right? And so, and you would think kind of tenderness and gangs don't go together. Well, but even in do. terms of a, attachment repair, you know, so... That's what you said really homeboy is doing. Yeah, and so so if if folks come to us, you know, barricaded behind a wall of shame and disgrace, you know, well, the only thing that can scale that wall is tenderness and and that's sort of how you know if somebody comes with a disorganized attachment right. you know mom is frightened or frightening and you can't really calm yourself down if you've never been soothed yeah then the place becomes this soothing place you know so everybody's yeah. in survival mode when they get there and they all carry these huge heavy backpacks marked chronic toxic stress so you can't deliver any message, any content, any service until you can get them to take that backpack off. Okay, now they found rest. Now they have respite from this. Mm-hmm. And then they're, then they're pliable. They can, they can receive all the tenderness that you give them. And then that becomes a way to move to another place, to re-identify who they are in the world, 
oh, I used to think courage was shooting at somebody. Well, now I see that that doesn't have anything to do with courage. You know, that kind of yeah, thing happens yeah. only because you've you've created a place, a sanctuary, really. Although that se- always seems to be such a charged word these days. But but then they become. I the love sanctuary. that word. I love that <laughs> yeah, word. Yeah. Then they become the sanctuary that they sought there, and then they go home to their kids, and and for the first time ever, they can present this sanctuary to their kids and and you've broken a cycle. And that's how it works, I think. Yeah. I think that's our secret sauce. Because a lot of a lot of places deliver messages and have content and deliver services, anger management or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But why ours I think is works is because it has this underlying sense of welcome and and tenderness. And, and so people are, you've you've prepared the soil uh, mm. for pe- to be have services delivered, which are all helpful and good. We do those too, but but the prior thing is the how do you prepare them to receive healing? It's really about surrendering to their own healing, and they won't get to that place until they feel love in the most palpable way. More meaningful conversations in just a bit. Long day at work, tough day at school, still stuck at the office? Treat yourself to the meal you deserve on demand from your favorite restaurant. Restaurants come to you with DoorDash. DoorDash connects you to all of your favorite restaurants in your city. Ordering is easy. Just use the DoorDash app and choose what you want to eat and your Dasher will bring it right to you, wherever you are. Not only is the burger place you love on DoorDash already, but over 310,000 other amazing restaurants are too. DoorDash connects you with door-to-door delivery in over 3,300 cities and all 50 states across the U.S. and Canada. Order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite chains. Wendy, Cheesecake Factory, you name it. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code MEANINGFUL. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code MEANINGFUL. Again, that's promo code MEANINGFUL for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. Now back to the conversation. You weren't really raised with tenderness, right? <laughs> I mean, you. I mean, I don't know because you, you have this beautiful story in here about sitting in silence, eating with your father for well, years. We, and, we, it's also generational. That's the, I, generational. Yeah, that's but I'm Irish, just saying, that's I know. Catholic. <laughs> you know, it's like, of course I love you. Please don't ask me to tell you this. Yes. You Please know? let me never say it. Let me never touch you. Let me never exhibit any tenderness towards you. the next generation, you know, then you kind of go, you know, I look at my, I have five sisters and two brothers and, and with their kids, they're so tender. They're yeah. so affectionate. They won't, they, they kiss, they hug. They, you, nobody leaves a room without being told that, you know, I love you. It, this happens all the time. 
but no more would have happened when we were kids. Right. But we always felt loved. But it's it's a generational but Irish But how do Catholic. you do that? That's what is interesting to me, the idea that you don't actually have to be raised in tenderness right. to exhibit tenderness. So I would like people to hear that out there who might have had... I think that's had, right. I think that's uh, absolutely sim- right. They're not in a gang, but maybe they were raised without tenderness, without yeah. that. And so that you can find that and that's actually what you're craving yeah but i also feel like we've evolved and we've grown you know even the notion of god when we were raised catholics and kids you know god was was not tender god was exacting oh he was judgmental (laughs) we were gonna go to he devil l hockey sticks right if we did anything but see but now, you know, has God changed? No, we, we've evolved. You know, we're not kind of a Baltimore catechism people. We're, you know, wow, this God is, doesn't want anything from us, wants only for us, loves us without measure, without regret. How did regret. that change? I mean, how do we, like, I find myself now telling myself that God is loving, that God is compassionate. And you have in here, I've underlined so much of this, God is good, you write, God has a plan for you. I believe that God is good, but also that God is too busy loving me to have a plan for me. And I'm constantly like, God loves me, I'm here for a reason, but I grew up with God's gonna get me, if I miss mass, I'm going to hell, God is judgmental, he's scary, he's this, so, what changed our narrative of God and how do you keep coming back to these, you know, you have God is rooting for me. You have so many things about how God is in you. God is loving to you. God sustains you. How'd you change that storyline? I think that's part of what prayer is about is to pay attention to how things are changing, how there's a notion, you know, that, and you're always adding. Yeah, I just buried my 92-year-old mother. And oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, and and when was that? Oh, no, just months ago, you know. Wow, yeah. And so she's she, I remember when she died, before she died, she would, you know, in and out of consciousness, but she'd lock onto one of her eight kids, and we'd be two or three or eight, and she'd say, she'd just lock onto you, and she'd say, You're here, you're here. And after I buried her, I thought, That's the whole agenda of God is just to look you in the eyes and say, you're here, you're here with breathless delight. Mm-hmm. And and it's so simple. Then you go, wow, I'm going to receive that tender glance. And then I'm going to choose to be that tender glance in the world, you know, mm-hmm. behold the one beholding you and smiling. Okay, now what? Now I'm going to be that in the world. We were never raised that way. We were mm-hmm. raised by great parents, yeah. you know, and I was privileged to meet your mama at Holy Cross hundred years ago, whenever that well, was. She won't want you to say a hundred years ago. It was probably <laughs> just before she died. She's probably kicking up stuff there. Right. But but yeah. I think then it comes, it gets more simple. So I don't think, God doesn't judge. God doesn't. So I look at gang members. Gang members have helped me with this. Because, you know, you'd think I would have met evil. Never. I've met guys who've killed people. But I've never seen evil. Explain that. Well, I've seen despair. I've seen hugely traumatized human beings, unspeakable things were done to them. And I've seen mental illness. So I've seen all that, but you know, we can't be so unsophisticated to think that this is about evil. This is about people who are so damaged. And so then you're able to stand in awe 
at what folks have had to carry rather than in judgment. Mm. And then you go, well, how much more so God? Is God standing in awe at what folks have had to carry rather than in judgment? Yeah, I mean, if we can pull it off, yeah. I'm going to presume God can do this as well. And so everything gets simpler, you know, as we grow. Yeah. You write in here off of that, nothing depends on how things turn out, only on how you see them when they happen. You write in here about kind of how we see what's happening to us, what has happened in our past, how we see our place in the world, that really our vision for ourselves really dictates how we go through the world. Yeah, and then what you're doing is you're aligning yourself to the heart of God, you know. So I, I remember the Dylan Roof killing horribly these right. people in, in the that. church. Right. And and then and everybody watched within a week, before a week was over, family members of those who were killed are standing in front of them saying, we forgive you. Yeah. It was breathtaking. People were going, wow, you knew you were in the presence of the God we actually have that can get underneath things, that can understand mental illness. And then nine months later when he's sentenced to die and people are calling it God's justice, you knew you had, we'd wandered back away from the God we actually have to the God we'll settle for, you know, the partial God, the puny God, the God created in our own image. And so... So we see signs of it all the time. It's a question of embracing the things that align with God's heart. Don't go away. We'll have more of the conversation in just a moment. But first, let's talk about one of our sponsors. If you run a creative business, you know how to make your clients look good. But if you're struggling with tedious administrative tasks, let HoneyBook do the work and make you look good. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communication, your bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. If you're a creative freelancer or a small business owner, HoneyBook helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. You can even use your HoneyBook to consolidate services you already use, like QuickBooks, Google Suite, and MailChimp. Over 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other entrepreneurs have saved hundreds to thousands of hours a year. And because HoneyBook has an easy-to-use mobile app as well, you can even run your business on the go, wherever life calls for it. It's your business just better with HoneyBook. Right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off your first year with promo code MEANINGFUL. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to HoneyBook.com and use promo code MEANINGFUL for 50% off your first year. Get paid faster and work smarter with HoneyBook.com, promo code MEANINGFUL. Now let's get back to the conversation. Don't you have a difficulty telling people that you come into contact with every day on their journey that there is a God 
that beholds you, that you have this great story in here where you say a woman uh, came in and said, I wish you were God. Oh, and yeah. you said, why? Because, and she said, because you would let me in. Into heaven. Yeah, because so many of us walk around feeling like that we've done things that would never get us in. Yeah. Right? And that, that you know, like most people are walking around like that. Yeah, although most saints, once all saints, once they have arrived at some kind of mysticism, you know, say, well, you know, even if they're forced, they'll say, well, maybe there's a hell, but I think it's empty, you know. <laughs> and, and so, because once they get to a point of knowing what kind of God we have, hell becomes not very tenable. Do you ever worry uh, about your own safety working where you do, working in the streets, working with people, as you say, who aren't evil, but who do kill? Well, people who are disturbed and mentally ill right. and traumatized and despondent. Yeah. Uh, not really, you know. Things can be interesting at our place, you know. But it's... it's what does that mean, interesting? Well, I, like, there was a fight this morning. It was kind of not a much of a fight. But people bump into each other. People like bump in. What does that mean? Bump <laughs> in. I don't think. I think that's like. A, well, uh, well, it's well, like my trainees, mother used to say when someone just, got in a fight, they just bumped into each other. Just, right? Those people no. I left, they were uh, so they came down. Some of the homies who run the place came and said, "Well, so and so and so and so, they kind of you know threw down up on the upstairs in the classroom." But when you pull them apart, you know that the behavior is a language. You know, it's a symptom of something. It's not a problem. You go, well, what was this about? And it turned out it had nothing to do. They liked each other. But because they had had bad days, somebody had punched one guy on the train. Not, not one of our people, but somebody. So it was like, you know, coming home and kicking the dog. It was like they had, it had nothing to do with each other. But it was a good moment for, for the older homies who run the place to sit them down and say, well, how are we going to make sure this doesn't happen again? You know, and so it was actually beautiful. But you have things like that, you know. You so have we had a, there was a lot of news, obviously, about Nipsey Hussle, who works down, kind of was working downtown to rehabilitate people who had been in gangs in his own way, and then ending up being killed. Like, you know, and then people are like, "Oh, we shouldn't work down in that area. That's a hopeless. Forget it." What was your take on that? Well, we had a lot of his homies from yeah. the gang to which he belonged before who work at our place, you know. Uh -huh. So the thing that was startling was how much information and how fast they knew everything, which was kind of extraordinary, you know. Wow. So then I'm walk, reading the news, I go, wow, the news doesn't even know the contours of this yet. So you watched how long it took before, you know, law enforcement and, and LA Times basically knew what was going on. But So their feel for kind of, what was happening, you know, and, and and they felt it deeply, you know, and they made the connection about here this guy was doing good and was generous with his money and that kind of thing. And so, how although it's problematic, you know, because I would never recommend that you know the eight gangs that were in my parish, I would never really recommend them to go back to to where their gang hangs out to try to alter things. It's one of those. It's, Why? Well, because there's too much history, you know, you can help, you can help. But once you're kind of right there, the degree of difficulty is really high, you know, because you were a gang member who had enemies in this particular locale. It's hard to do 
What's the biggest misunderstanding amongst people who may be paralyzed, privileged, or, you know, that about gangs, whether it's here in L.A. or any other city in our country? Well, people, they're always the myths. You know, I always get this asked when I'm on the road, you know. I didn't want to ask anything that's always asked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but it's that notion of that you're always, uh, are you endangering yourself Mm -hmm. by walking towards Homeboy, for example? You know, where your homies hate you, or will they hate me for having offered them a, a way out? But I've been doing this for a long time, and so I've never, I've never seen it. And so I'm going to presume it, 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 it isn't out there, you know, hostility. But what is the misconception about Well, the misconception is blood in, blood out. If you step away, we're going to kill you. We're going to have consequences for the fact that you've walked over to Homeboy to redirect your life. And I've never seen it in 30 But you also years. write in here that you that no one joins a gang. You write in the book, no one joins a gang because they feel hopeful about it. Well, no hopeful person has ever joined, no hopeful kid has ever joined a gang. So you have these things that you turn on its head, you know, like no kid is seeking anything when he joins a gang. He's always fleeing something. Yeah. Well, I think the prevailing cultural myth is that you know, wine, women, and song, join a gang, see the world. You know, they're seeking that or even belonging. And none of that is true. What is true? They're all fleeing something. So if we were to address the thing they're fleeing, yeah. wow, imagine if we could infuse hope for the kids who are for whom hope is foreign. If you could heal what kids have to endure. If you could deliver mental health services in a timely fashion and culturally appropriate. All those things would be, wow, that would really be helpful. But and instead, the outsider view kind of drives the policy and our take. You know, I saw a brochure in somewhere in a big city in this country. From Chief of police gave it to me, you know, and it was supposed to give to parents if your kids are gravitating perilously close to gang stuff. Mm-hmm. And you open it, it says the number one reason why kids join gangs, excitement. And nobody would, any, nobody who knows gangs would say that that's even on the top 200 list. Really? You know? No, because that's the outsider view. That's somebody going, why would a kid join a gang? Oh, I know, excitement, put that down, you know, crazy. But that they don't know that kids are fleeing things, that the you know, gangs are the places they go when they've encountered their life as a misery, and misery loves company. So mm. so address the misery, you know. Mm. And and you have kids in the same economic situation, single mother, distraught, survival. That kid joins a gang and that kid doesn't, you know. And it all has to do with where is there the lethal absence of hope? You know, where is the despondent kid? Where is the really traumatized kid who's endured torture and terror? And where's that kid? That kid's going to join a gang. Or where's the kid who's, you know, truly suffering diagnosable mental health issues? All those kids are going to join a gang. So if you know that, then you can, you can do something. I think there's radical kinship in that people who are even in, as you said, paralyzed privilege are fleeing because so many of us are fleeing, fleeing, right? And that maybe therein lies a common ground. 
Right? Well, perhaps I hadn't thought of that actually because that, in terms of access to the truth of who you are, knowing what you're fleeing, knowing right. what's in there, what's in the mix, do the work. We always say at Homeboy, you know, we, we to know yourself. You mean yeah? Do people do the work? You know, the reason why you fought with that guy right now? Yeah, you're not doing the work. That's what the homies will say to them. If Got you're doing it. the work, then you can't be taken to that place. Yeah, you had a bad day. Yeah, on the train, some guy you don't even know punched you because he thought you were from other, another gang. And you've been stewing in that all morning. Somebody bumps into you mm-hmm. and you throw down in the, in the classroom and they'll say, no, you're not doing the work. Otherwise, you never would have been taken to that place. Mm. You would have been able to process it in a way that's resilient and healthy, life-giving, you know. Do you love the work? Yeah, I mean, I, that's why I, driving over here, I thought, wow, that was just the most. I just loved this morning from 9 to... The day began, I had to go and anoint a homie I've known for 30 years who's um, in hospice and he's dying of cancer. In Spanish, you know, uh, when somebody shares your name, you say tocayo. Tocayo means the one who shares your name. So his name is Greg. So I've known him forever. But he's young. You know, he's whatever he is, 40. And he's he's been struggling with cancer for a long time. But there he was uh, in the bed. I ran over there to West Covina before I came to work just to, and I've been on the road. So they were saying, you know, the homies will text me. You have to read him his last rites. You know, I go, well, that's that's not the Miranda law, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we went over there and no one was there. I thought maybe family might be there. He was just alone. Oh. Completely not conscious, you know. And it was just, uh, that's my tokayo, the one who has my name. So that's how the day began. And then coming to the office to, uh, it was so exhilarating and hilarious and wonderful. And so, do I love? I just love my life. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm, I'm too much on the road, but I, I love it when I come back. Father Boyle is living the epitome of a meaningful life. This is called meaningful conversations, and so many of us talk about wanting to live quote a meaningful life, and you just heard it right there, right, Takaya. So. Uh, <laughs> That's beautiful. Once again, the book is called Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Also wrote a book called Tattoos on the Heart, which is about his early work. And Father Boyle, you can look at Homeboy Industries, also Homegirl. Cafe. Cafe, yeah. We, I did a women's event here, and we had the Homegirl over there at the school, Homegirl catered yes they they catered and the food is really good and if you go through the la airport you can see homeboy industries i always go in there even if i don't need to buy anything (laughs) just go in there and get a muffin or just buy something to be supportive of the work but uh this has been super inspiring to me because i sometimes have found myself sitting in parallel being paralyzed as we all think we have and you may walk over here and try to make a difference here but i think kind of resetting the intention of not making a difference to the other person, but allowing, as you said, that kinship to happen to you might be what our country really could use. As we're so divided, we're so othered, we're so the opposite of radical kinship. We're in radical, don't come near me, right? And we're both old enough to know that that hasn't always been the case. Yeah. 
I don't think we've seen this, uh, not even, it's not since the Civil War, I think, really. It's really quite pronounced. Do you think we can get out? Oh, yeah, I do. I think people, people once, once you can kind of take the messaging to a more spacious, expansive thing, pe people go, okay. And people leave behind the divisions because that's what everybody wants. That's our deepest longing. Yeah. But uh, leaders have to remind us of our deepest longing. And, and not, then they'll connect to it. And not stoke the opposite. Yeah. Stoke the other. Yeah, exactly. Remind us of our deepest belonging and our deepest longing. And that when someone is stoking the fear of the other, maybe we have to sit back and think about what happened to them in their childhood that makes them that way. Exactly. Yeah. Compassion Let's, all the way around. Amen. Father Boyle, it's always an honor to talk you. to you. It's always Likewise. inspiring. Likewise, Father Greg Boyle, go buy his book. <laughs> <laughs> by the book, Breaking the Barking to the Choir, and there's a funny story in the beginning about how that title came to be. Father Boyle. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Meaningful Conversations. If you're looking for more inspiration and words of wisdom, then please sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Sunday Paper. It's free and it's really good. Just visit my website, mariashriver.com, to subscribe. I hope you'll also check out my book, I've Been Thinking, and its new companion, I've Been Thinking, The Journal. Like this podcast, these books were created to help you on your path to a meaningful life. More details on my website about all of that as well. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to being in community with you again right here each Monday.